Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Morning, everybody. How are you? Doing okay? So we did our first 8 a.m. service today on a day after uh, we had a time switch where we lost an hour, and all I could think was, I hope that that's the closest to hell anybody ever gets. (laughs) Um, Rough, Um, but good. So we're starting a new series today uh, on the book of Galatians called Fighting for Freedom. Uh, through the series, we're going to do it for a lot of weeks, so this would be a good opportunity for you to be able to, uh, to read the book yourself. So read through Galatians a few times as we're going through this series. Let the, the Word of the Lord speak to you and, and change you, so this would be a good time to dig into Scripture. So we're starting this new series, and today, uh, first five verses, I just really want to give you an overview, uh, kind of a 30,000-foot view of what's going on in this book. So the context, who wrote it, what's going on. Uh, what's happening throughout this, uh, this letter that Paul writes to the Galatians. Um, so this was, as the first verse says, written by a man named Paul. Uh, Paul was an early church leader. Now, when Christianity first started, uh, it started in Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus died in Jerusalem, and Jesus was resurrected in Jerusalem. And so the first believers, uh, the first Christians, were all in Jerusalem. But God never meant for it to be contained. Uh, he wanted this message to spread out to the entire world, and that's what ended up happening. So this man named Paul, uh, he was a church leader. He was a missionary. He went and he preached the gospel uh, all over the ancient world, and, and actually God ordained him to, uh, to preach to the Gentiles. And Gentile just means non-Jewish person. So uh, Paul went and preached to the Gentiles, and, and a lot of people heard about Jesus, heard about his death and his resurrection. They believed that Jesus is Lord. And so they would believe, and then Paul would start a church in those places. And so Paul is going around the ancient world, preaching the gospel, planting churches. One of the places he went to is this place called Galatia. And he planted some churches there. And this, uh, this book of the Bible is a letter to the Galatians. Paul is writing a letter to these people in the Galatian church. Now, this letter, the purpose of the letter is basically Paul stepping into a fight. Right, so there. After he planted the church, uh, just shortly after, he went to go plant some other churches and start start some new things. And then right after that, these guys from Jerusalem came in, and uh, they started preaching in Galatia. And they said, "Listen, we uh, uh, we're Christians. Uh, we're we're Christian preachers. And so, uh, but we're going to preach a, a message a little different than what Paul told you. So yes, Jesus is Lord. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, you should worship him. But uh, but if you really want to please God." If you really want to be accepted, then you probably also need to obey the, the Jewish law and you need to uh, obey all the Jewish rituals and rites. So if you really want to, uh, to please God, that's what you got to do. That's a little bit different than what Paul was preaching. So uh, Paul is writing this letter and he is going to dispute what they're saying. He hears about this. He hears that they're preaching a different message and now he has to step in to fight to defend the Galatian people. And so he's writing this letter, and uh, there's two main things that these, uh, these new teachers are teaching that he's going to fight against in this letter. Um, and, and these people are called, because they're trying to, to get the Galatians to, uh, to follow Jewish cultural and, uh, and rituals and rites and the, and the law of the Jewish people, they're called Judaizers. So if you hear that word, that's what that means. It's these false teachers that have come into Galatia. So uh, there's two main things that they're teaching that Paul's going to fight against. The first is cultural discrimination, and the second 
is legalism. So first, cultural discrimination. These teachers are teaching that if you want to please God, then you must conform to the Jewish culture. Now, the Galatians were Gentiles. They weren't Jews. They had their own cultural practices. They had their own traditions. Uh, they had their own histories and stories. But these teachers from Jerusalem come in and they say, listen, God has always uh, favored the Jewish people. They, the, the Jewish people have always been God's people. He's always worked in the world through them. He gave the law to them. And so if you want to follow God, then you're going to have to look like them. If you want to follow God, then you're going to have to conform to the rituals and rites of Judaism. If you want to look like God, you're going to have to follow the law. So they said, okay, we've got, the, we've got these, these rituals and rites that we've been doing for thousands of years, so you need to start doing them too. One of them, like dietary restrictions. Uh, the Jewish people didn't eat shellfish, didn't eat pork. So they said, you can't eat pork. Now, that's not a great way to win a bunch of men over, is to say you can't have any bacon. I wouldn't recommend it, but that's what they're saying. No more bacon. You need to follow our, our cultural norms. Another thing that they said is for thousands of years, uh, the Jewish men have been marked by the sign of circumcision. They said, so all you Galatian men, grown men, if you want to be a Christian, you need to get circumcised. Another way not to win any male converts. <laughs> um, so it, it's kind of funny in retrospect to look at this and say, well, why are they making them do all this? But doesn't it ring a little familiar, maybe? Isn't that maybe a little bit like something that we even do today, maybe even do in the church? See, the Bible says that the gospel of Jesus is for all peoples and all cultures, but for all intents and purposes, these teachers were saying, no, the gospel of Jesus is for one kind of people, it is for one culture, and if you want to take part in Christianity, if you want to follow Jesus, you have to be a part of that culture. You have to conform to those ways. That's human nature, right? It, it, it's human nature for us to group ourselves by commonalities, right? By affinities. I like to have people around me that affirm all the things that I like. So do you. That's kind of our tendency. As pe it's just human nature. We tend to surround ourselves with people that look like us, that act like us. And so we shouldn't be surprised to see that creeping into the church. Um, and, and we shouldn't even be surprised to see that creeping into our church right? On the outside, we say, yes, Jesus, this gospel message is for all peoples. But listen, if you really want to like take part and sink deep into this family, then you probably need to look like us. You need to talk like us. You need to quote all the same people as us. Uh, you need to listen to the same music, like all the same things, watch the same TV shows. It, we probably don't say that out loud, but there's a subtle undertone. Does that creep in? I think it probably does. And when we do that, we start to win converts to ourselves, not to Christ. We start to win converts to our way of doing things, not to the gospel. And maybe it's not even necessarily the church, but maybe somewhere in your life, there are people who are outsiders and you keep them at arm's length, right? They're different than you and it's difficult to engage them. Maybe, maybe there's the, in your neighborhoods, in your communities, at your workplace, uh, people that your kids play with, right? You, there are people that are hard for you to engage because they're different than you. They, they aren't culturally the same, and so you keep them at arm's length. Maybe they're creepy, and they're weird, and you don't like the vibe they're putting off. Maybe they're really self-important and prideful, and you, you just don't like how arrogant they are. Maybe you're an introvert, and there's these people that are really obnoxious, loud extroverts, and you're sick of them. Maybe you're an extrovert, and there's all these introverts, and uh, they can't seem to hold a conversation, and you're sick of it, right? There's any number of reasons why someone could be different than you, but instead of doing the hard work to engage them and to include them, you try to keep them as the outsider because it's hard. You keep them at arm's length. And like I said, that's human nature. It comes naturally to us to do that. But the church, friends, the gospel is not built on human nature. It is built on Christ's nature. 
And you are not called to follow whatever comes naturally. You're called to follow Jesus. And Jesus' message at its very core is that he welcomes the outsider and makes them insiders. Right? We could not be more different than Jesus. He is holy and righteous, compassionate, loving. What are we most of the time? We're, uh, we're not holy. We're sinful. We're rebels against God. We, uh, we're pretty prideful and selfish. We could not be more different than Jesus. And yet, even as we try and push him away, he brings us in. We were outsiders and he made us insiders. And that's the message, that's the, that's the call that he's giving us, right? He's called us to be hospitable and welcoming. He's called us to take the people that are difficult and engage them. He's called us as a church to be a beautiful collection of diverse cultures, And he's called us to be a people with only one non-negotiable. The only thing that that defines our culture is that we have faith in Christ. That's it. Everything else is just rock and roll. That's the one thing. And so he's called us to lay down our preferences, lay down our rights, and to not be uh, discriminatory culturally, but to bring the outsiders in. Now, the other thing that Paul is fighting, not just cultural discrimination, he's also fighting legalism. These people, uh, these Judaizers, they were teaching that if you want to please God then you have to obey his law. Um, so that they're saying, although Jesus died and rose from the dead, you still need to obey God's law in order to be saved. Um, sure, if you believe in Jesus, you can be forgiven, you can be given a fresh start, but after that, it's up to you. You still need to obey the law, you need to measure up, you need to perform, is what they're saying. And the problem with that is that even if we had a fresh start, we don't have the capacity to obey. Even if we had a million fresh starts, our hearts are broken and wrong. They're always going to pull selfishly. They're always going to be pulled towards sin, toward idolatry. We're never going to obey on our own. We can't do it. And that's the problem. They're they're calling us to obey God in order to be saved. But if that's the case, we will never be saved because we can't do it. We're too broken. We're too wrong. And so... The, the Galatian people are hearing this, and, and once again, this is kind of natural. It's kind of human nature to be pulled toward this idea of trying to measure up, to obey in order to be accepted, to, uh, to try to perform in order to feel worthy. So it's, it's no wonder that they hear this message, and they're like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. We'll do that. We, that sounds right. Um, the, you know, this gospel message, all well and good. We probably need to do all the right things, too, in order to be loved. That makes, and we do the same thing, do we not? Even us who who have heard the gospel, we have heard about Jesus and mercy and forgiveness, still over and over in our hearts, we go back to this idea that we need to to perform, we need to measure up in order to be accepted, in order to be loved. Martin Luther, a theologian, wrote, there's not one in a thousand who does not set his confidence upon his works, expecting by them to win God's favor and anticipate his grace. That idea that Martin Luther is putting forward right there is... uh, popularly paraphrased as religion is the default mode of the human heart. And by that, we mean self-justification. Me trying to earn my worthiness. Me trying to perform in order to be loved. Me trying to be found acceptable by my works. That is the default mode of the human heart. And we just keep going back to it and back to it and back to it. No matter if we hear the gospel of grace, that's why we meet every week is because we forget. It's because it's not natural. It's because that truth of the gospel that that. We cannot perform enough to be found acceptable. That does not come naturally, and we need to be reminded. We need for it to be sunk into our hearts again and again and again. And friends, I want you to hear this. The gospel is indeed utterly unique. 
There is nothing, like, it is not natural, it is supernatural. Every other world religion, major world religion, is based on the principle, if I obey, then I'll be accepted. Our hearts work on the principle, if I perform, then I'll be accepted. If I measure up, then I will be worthy. But the gospel stands in stark contrast to that. It turns that and takes it and puts it on its head. The gospel of Jesus says, I'm accepted already, even though I'm a failure. Even though I can't measure up, I'm already accepted because of what Christ has done, because of his perfect life, his death on our behalf, his resurrection. We are already accepted by God, and therefore, because we're accepted, that changes our hearts to where we can obey. That is utterly different than anything else that you will hear in this world. But it's so hard to believe it. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't, I can't shake this feeling that I, I need to perform, that in my heart I need to measure up. Week in and week out, we need to have the gospel sunk into our hearts, spoken into us. We need to be reminded again and again that that's the truth. So those are the things that Paul is fighting. He's fighting cultural discrimination. He is fighting legalism. And, and Paul himself has a history of being a bit of a fighter anyway. Um, a little background on Paul that may be helpful. He, his name used to be Saul. And he was, uh, before he was a, a Christian missionary, he was uh, a fanatic Jewish leader. Uh, he was the best of the best when it comes to the Jewish religion. He, uh, he studied under the best rabbis. He was well-respected. And in fact, he became... Uh, a little bit of a fanatic. We call him a, we probably call him a religious extremist today. He was so fanatical about his faith, about his, uh, his religion, that if anyone started to, uh, to convert away, he would persecute them. And so when these people started believing in Christ and leaving the, the religion of Judaism to be, be Christians, he would persecute them, sometimes wow. imprison them, sometimes kill them. That's how fanatical he was about, uh, about his religion. And, and remember, we're calling this Fighting for Freedom. That's the name of the series. So we're going to pay particular attention to Saul right now. Why was he fighting that way? What provoked him so? What stirred up this conflict in his heart to where he would persecute other people? Well, he had built his entire life on being the perfect Jew. He had built his entire life on obeying the law, on being found blameless, on having the best cultural pedigree. That's what he built his life on. And then all of a sudden, when these people start converting away from his religion into this, uh, this thing where they're saying Jesus is the Lord, that stirs up something in his heart. And he takes it upon his self-righteous shoulders to defend God's honor. How self-righteous does it get to where you say, God needs me to defend him? That's pretty self-righteous. And that's what he starts doing. He's defending God's honor by killing people who would go away from him and join this new Christian faith. What was going on there is that in his heart, he had built his righteousness on his ability to defend and obey his God and his religion. That's, he, it was self-righteousness that he had built up. He was performing. He was doing all the right things. And if anyone threatened that, that provoked conflict in his heart. This thing that he built his life on, if, if anyone degraded that, he wanted to fight them. And I would argue that we're actually no different than Saul. We are often fighting with others to defend ourselves, to justify ourselves, to, uh, to protect our sense of self-righteousness. 
At the very least, we may not come to physical blows and we may not actually persecute and kill people like Saul did, but in our hearts, we get contentious, don't we? We get angry. We're full of rage. We want to fight. A couple quick examples. Um, uh, recently, a friend of mine had a 30th birthday party and it was a surprise party and his wife asked if I would play some music at the party. And uh, I'm a musician. I said, yes, of course. And so uh, we're at this party. It's in southern Indiana. That's where he lives. And so we're in this uh, in this bar in southern Indiana. We're having a great time. It's his birthday. I'm, I play about an hour and a half set and uh, get done. I'm getting ready to put my guitar down. And an old friend of mine comes up, and she, uh, she's also a very talented musician. She says, hey, would you mind if I uh, borrowed your guitar and played a couple songs too? And I was like, yes, of course. That's a, uh, she's a friend of mine. I'm like, this is awesome. Great. Go ahead. So she picks it up. She starts playing. It's, it sounds phenomenal. And so I walk over to the bar to get a drink, and the bartender's just staring at her. And remember, we're in southern Indiana, so there's a little bit of a drawl. He's like, oh, she's real good. <laughs> I said, yeah, she is. She's really good. And he goes, oh, I mean, she is real good. I mean, you weren't terrible, but she's real good. And something happened right there where I was like, whoa, 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 Mr. Southern Indiana bartender. If, if I didn't even get to play my best songs. If I would have gotten to play my best songs, then you would say I was real good. And I'm thinking to myself, all of a sudden, I feel my blood pressure rising a little bit. I'm like, well, I, you know, I was trying to be background music, and she's not. If I would have been trying to get your attention, you would have noticed, and you would have said I was real good. What's happening there? Apparently, I have built a little bit of my self-righteousness on my ability to play music. And when someone stacked me up against someone else and I didn't measure up, it messed with me. All of a sudden, I felt like I needed to fight to protect my sense of self-righteousness. I, I need to protect my reputation here. That's what I felt like. I didn't come to blows with the guy, but uh, in my heart, I was angry, and, uh, and I felt defensive. Right? It caused me to fight. Uh, I, another example, I work in the corporate world, and so a client calls the other day, and uh, something on his bill was not written the way that he wanted. Now, it, it wasn't wrong. It just wasn't the way he wanted to see it written out. And he was, he's a very self-important guy, and he just reamed me up and down. I mean, cussed me out, and uh, he started to intentionally make me feel small, started to intentionally belittle me. And as the conversation wore on, I could feel my fists clenching, and I could feel my heart racing, and uh, my teeth were grinding. And kept a professional in the moment, of course. When that call was done, I had to stand up and walk away and take a couple swings at the air. Why? because this guy was degrading my sense of self-righteousness. I, I like to think that I do a good job, and once he starts to mess with that, then I feel defensive. I get angry. I'm ready to fight to defend myself. What is that for you? There's something in your life that if someone messes with it, if they threaten it, if they degrade it, it makes you defensive. You start to boil. It makes you want to fight. Whatever that is in your life, think about that. That's where you're trying to prove yourself. That's where you are trying to self-justify. That is where legalism lives in your heart. That's where you are trying to protect your sense of self-righteousness. So back to Paul. So Paul, uh, his self-righteousness, his religion has been threatened, and he's going out and he's persecuting Christians. He's killing people. And he's on his way to this town called Damascus to kill some more Christians. And uh, as he's on his way, this bright light comes, knocks him off his horse, and it's Jesus. The resurrected Jesus is there and speaks to him. And uh, he, uh, he gets taken to this, this town, and some other believers take care of him. By the end of the whole ordeal, this guy who was killing Christians is now a Christian. He has met the Lord Jesus. He believes, and all of a sudden, he's a proponent of grace, 
radical 180. This guy completely changes. Um, Whereas he used to persecute the church, now he's proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God. And the, the change is so abrupt, the change is so radical that his name even changes from Saul to Paul. He goes from being a persecutor to a preacher. And now he's the guy that's preaching to the Galatians. Radical change. And so here's the deal. These Judaizers have come in and they have, uh, they have tried to puff themselves up as teachers in Galatia. And they've been trying to, to prove that their message is better than Paul's by saying, listen, this guy Paul, he, we came from Jerusalem. We've actually talked to the apostles who knew Jesus when he was alive. Paul doesn't know Jesus. Paul's never met Jesus. So what he's saying, probably wrong. What we're saying, probably right. And then Paul is coming in, and if you look in verse 1 of our passage, it says, Paul, an apostle, and then he makes men, like special mention after the word apostle, not from men or through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Why does he say that? Why does he make that special mention? He's saying that he's not an apostle by, by the will of man. He's saying he's, he doesn't have like this made-up, man-made message. He's saying, Jesus himself has spoken to me, and I have been called to proclaim this gospel and this gospel alone. I have the right message. These guys are coming in. They're telling you lies. Believe me, please. I have the true message of the gospel, and it is not obedience and performance in order to please God. And the proof that Paul has the real message, the proof that Paul really has met Jesus, the proof that Paul really does have this real gospel message is the way he fights now. Because think about it. These guys are coming in, and they, this, this beautiful gospel message that Paul has preached, they're coming into this town and undermining. And they are, uh, they're saying Paul is wrong. Now, the old Saul would have heard about that, and he would have come to town, and he would have whacked those guys and buried them in a shallow grave, Right? He would have been provoked to fight against these people that were threatening this thing that he had put so much time and effort into. But what does Paul do now? Now that he's a changed man by the gospel, he doesn't feel the need to fight against these guys to protect his sense of self-righteousness and his worth. No, he doesn't need to fight against them now for himself. He is fighting for the good of the Galatian people. You can read it all throughout the message. He's compassionate now. He's trying to defend them because he knows the gospel of Jesus is the only thing that will ever save them, give them satisfaction, and give them joy. He is fighting to protect them, not to protect himself and his self-righteousness. That is the mark of the gospel. You no longer have to fight others for your own reputation. Now you can use your efforts to fight for the good of other people and for the work of the gospel. The gospel had the power to change Paul and has the power to change us. When the gospel changes our hearts, now, when someone threatens that thing that you've built your self-righteousness on, you no longer have to fight against them. You no longer have to protect your idols and your self-righteousness. Now you're free, not to fight against others, but to fight for others. You're free to fight for the good of other people and for their salvation. That's the gospel change that we see in Paul. That can be the gospel change that happens in us. So as we move through this, I, I want to point out one flaw in the teaching of these Judaizers um, that I see. A big problem that, uh, that I see in their teaching is that they don't even seem to understand their own message. They are preaching to these Gentile people that if they really want to please God, then they had to follow the rules, they had to follow the law, and they had to measure up to the standards of the law, and they had to convert to Jewish cultural practices. So just real quick, what makes up a culture? What is it that defines a people's culture? I would argue that it is shared formative experiences, right? What is it when you get together with old friends, you guys have a culture, you have, you're bound together by something, what is it? It's the fact that you've shared so many times together, so many stories, 
right? You've built, a, you've built your history on these shared experiences. And I would say that, that stories, experiences, that is what builds a culture. And so what is, what is the Jewish culture built on? I would say that the quintessential story that uh, the culture of Judaism is built on is the Exodus. So here's a real quick synopsis of the Exodus, right? Nutshell. If you want the, the full version, you can either read it or you can watch the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston <laughs> and uh, get the full cinematic sweep. So real quick, uh, in a nutshell, the Israelite people, the Jewish people, they're slaves in Egypt, right? Uh, the Egyptians have enslaved them. They're uh, doing all this slave labor. And the Lord sends a prophet named Moses. And Moses is sent because the Lord wants to free the Israelites. And uh, so the Moses goes down, proclaims to Pharaoh, who's the king of the Egyptians, that, uh, that he is there to free the Israelites. And through a series of miraculous events, Finally, Pharaoh relents and says, yes, fine, I will free the Israelites. I've been beaten, go. And so Moses is leading the Israelites out of Egypt, and uh, he's going, God says, I have a land that I've prepared for you, and I'm going to take you there, and I'm going to plant you there as a people. And so they're headed toward that land, and uh, all of a sudden, Pharaoh has a change of heart. And he says, you know, wait a second. I think I'm going to miss that slave labor. I'm going to get an army together, and I'm going to go out, and I'm going to bring the Jewish people back. And so he has a change of heart, gets his army. They go out after the Jewish people. So the Jewish people are walking toward this promised land when all of a sudden they see the Egyptians on the horizon that are coming out to get them. And so the problem is they've walked all the way to the shores of the Red Sea. And so they have this huge body of water on the east. They have this hostile army to the west, and they have nowhere to go. They're stuck. They're stuck between enslavement and death. And they start... Uh, I really love it because they have this line. They're, they're complaining. They start to get really contentious, and they start to fight Moses and fight God. And the, the Jewish people say, uh, what, Moses, is it because there's no graves left in Egypt that you brought us all the way out here to die? I love it. They're in peril, but they still got time for a good singer. Um, <laughs> and so they say they're complaining to Moses, and they're complaining to God. We never wanted to leave, leave Egypt in the first place. We thought enslavement was good. Why have you done this? This is terrible. And, uh, and Moses speaks these words to them. In Exodus 14, he says, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Right? They're, they're already contentious. They're fighting with God. They're fighting with Moses. They're afraid they have to fight with this Egyptian army that's coming after them. But he says, The Lord will fight for you. Just be silent. Just stop. Just be still. And then the Lord says, all right, I'm going to open up the waters of the Red Sea. And he does. The waters miraculously open up and there's dry land to walk on. And they, he leads them through this Red Sea, this, this path of dry land, and they get to the other side. Uh, and then the Egyptians try to follow them. And then when the Egyptians try to follow them, the, the waters come crashing back down and, and destroys them. The Lord destroys the, uh, the captors. The Lord destroys the enemies. And all of a sudden, the Israelites have been baptized into this utterly free life. They're on the other side, and their, their imprisonment is over. Their captors are gone, and they are free. And it's all because the Lord fought for them. That their lives are saved, and that they become a free people. And now that they're saved and they're, they're free, do you know where the Lord is leading them next? The next place they go is to a place called Mount Sinai. And that's where the Lord gives them his law. The very law that the Gentiles are, are being told they have to follow. The Galatians are being told they have to follow now. 
The Lord is leading them there next. But the order of that is very important. Do you see it? It wasn't that the Jewish people were good and obeyed God and were faithful and then he saved them. No, in fact, they were pretty contentious. They were fighting. They were complaining. And they didn't even have the law to obey. They weren't faithful. They didn't trust God. Everything about them would not scream, uh, I'm obedient. But he saves them. He saves them because he loves them. Why does he love them? He loves them because he loves them, not for any reason in and of themselves. He, he just acts out of love and mercy and compassion. He saves them. And then he gives them the law. And not to obey uh, so that they can earn their salvation, he gives them the law because he's like, this is a way of living that's going to be good for you. It's going to bring you peace and harmony. It's going to keep you healthy. It's going to make you happy. It's, it, it's a gift to you. Not something to be held in bondage under so that you can earn my love. No, he, he loves them and then gives them the opportunity to obey. Do you see it? See, the Judaizers want the Galatians to conform to Jewish culture by obeying the law, but it seems that the quintessential story of Jewish culture is not one of law at all, but of grace. They didn't understand the culture they were trying to get the Galatians to conform to. If they would have, they would have believed the same gospel message Paul preached, and that's one of complete and utter grace. So friends, this story, thank God, has become our story. The story of the Exodus, that's, that's now become our story. Like Paul, we're tempted to fight for our own self-righteousness. Like the Israelites, we're tempted to complain and fight against God in hard circumstances. We were in bondage. We were enslaved, not to Egyptians, but to sin and idolatry and self-righteousness. And just like Pharaoh's army, those things are bearing down intent on our destruction. And not only that, but we have in our pride, spurned the God who wants to save us and we complained and fought against him. We are stuck, just like they were, between uh, not an army and a sea. We're stuck between enslavement to sin and certain death by judgment. We're stuck with nowhere to go. And this is a fight we can't win. But look at verse 3 of our Galatians passage. Galatians 1.3 says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God, of our God and Father. You see, Jesus, who is God in the flesh, he steps in and fights on our behalf. The same can be said to us that was said to the Israelites. Just be silent and the Lord will fight for you. This is a fight you can't win. The Lord will fight for you and he will save you and he will free you. Just as God delivered the Israelites from the hands of the Egyptians, Jesus fought to deliver us from evil, it says, from sin, from enslavement, from death and guilt and judgment. Jesus fought for us, and he won. But he fights and he wins in a very funny way. He loses. The verse says uh, in Galatians says, he gave himself. He allows himself to be defeated. He allows himself to be betrayed, uh, to be shamed, to be killed on a cross. And to us, that looks like defeat. But he was dying the death that we deserved. We had declared war against God, and we deserved wrath and judgment for it. And he was dying the death that we deserved so that we wouldn't have to be held under judgment anymore. And then, after he's defeated, and, and it seems like he loses, then he comes back to life. He's resurrected. And in the end, in a shocking finish, he is the ultimate victor over death 
and over enslavement to sin and idolatry. He lost so that we can win, and in the end, he wins too. He has fought for us, and now after he has fought for us, we're completely free from the bondage of sin. We're completely free from condemnation. We're completely free from guilt and judgment and death. He has given us life and freedom. Friends, this changes everything. Everything about our lives. Because he fought for us and won, we're no longer compelled to have to fight God anymore. God has already proven that he loves us. God has already proven that we're accepted. Right? And because of that, we're also free not to fight against others anymore. We don't have to fight to preserve our sense of self-righteousness anymore because God has given us righteousness. There's nothing left for us to prove. You don't have to fight to prove yourself because there's nothing left to prove because A, we know we're not good enough to prove ourselves. You're never going to be able to prove yourself, so stop trying. And B, because God has already proven that he loves us unconditionally, there's no reason to prove yourself because what are you going to get that's better than God's unconditional love? Nothing. Stop trying to prove yourself because the gospel has shown that God accepts us anyway, that he has fought for us and he has won, that he has freed us and loved us and given us life. And so now that completely frees us to stop fighting for ourselves and to fight for others like Paul did. Now you're free to fight for the good of your neighbors. Now you're free to fight for the joy and prosperity of your community. Now you're able to fight for the inclusion of the outsider. Now you're able to fight for the, spreading the gospel message to those who don't know, for, uh, for spreading this proclamation of Jesus' unmerited grace because we know that grace and grace alone is the only cure for the disease of sin. It is the only hope for restoration for the brokenness of our hearts and it is the only homecoming call for our lostness. Grace and grace alone is the only message that will save and that is worth fighting for. And that's what Paul is fighting for. And that's what he's calling us to step into. And what's the, what is the end result of all of it? We see this in the final verse of the passage. It says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God our Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. In the end, to the victor goes the spoils and our God is the victor and he gets the glory. He's a very gracious and generous God, and so he shares the spoils with us. He gives us joy and life and satisfaction. And he says he's going to give us life forever. We get to enjoy his presence, and we get to sit and bask in his glory for eternity. That's the end result of this fight. Our God is the victor, and he shares the victory with us. So friends, we're going to take some time. There's going to be some reflection questions on the screen. I want you to pray through those to think about the way that you fight and to pray to God to help you, to change your heart. And while we're doing that, we're also going to take an offering. That's our way of of worshiping God. You can fill out a a worship response card. And uh, if you do that and write in a prayer request, people on staff will pray for you. And if you're you're new here, if you haven't been here before, then please fill out some information, drop it in the offering basket. We would love to get in touch with you or talk with you or uh, help in any way we can. And after that, we'll take communion and we'll celebrate the grace that we've been given. So friends, will you take a moment, will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for fighting on our behalf. We, we very humbly admit that we can't do it on our own. We're not good enough. We humbly admit that we don't have the power to save ourselves, that we don't measure up. We admit it. We confess it. Help us. Thank you for saving us. Help us to stop fighting for ourselves so that we can fight for the good of others, God. Speak deep gospel truth into our hearts so we can, be, we can know our freedom and we can be changed. 
And it's in the name of Jesus that we trust and that we hope and that we pray.